This is Window on the East, a podcast from BNE Intellinews. Subscribe at bne.eu. Hello and welcome to Window on the East with me, Ben Aris, the editor of BNE Intellinews. So after a summer hiatus, we're back with the podcast. I just spent the last few days on the Isle of Rhodes in Greece at the Dialogues of the Civilizations Conference where academics, politicians and civil activists get together to talk about the state of the world. So I'm here with Ian Golden, who is a former deputy director of the World Bank and now... Vice President of the World Bank. Vice President of the World Bank and now... Um, uh, professor of Globalization, Economist, I'm running International Relations, um, and founding director of the Oxford Martin School, which is a big interdisciplinary group. And as you can hear, we're in a bar at the uh, Dialogue of Civilizations conference here in Rhodes, uh, an annual two. And Ian, so I, I don't know where to start. There's so much we could talk about, there's so much you do know about. Um, but I guess the, the main theme of the conference is dialogue in so much as after the fall of the Berlin Wall, there was this huge optimism of bringing the socialism world together with the capitalist world and uniting the globe. And that worked after the chaos of the 90s. Uh, we had the noughties where it actually seemed to come to fruition and now the whole thing's fragmented again. And what went wrong? I think a number of things went wrong. Um, I think this process uh, of integration uh, some call it globalization, the coming down of walls it was an incredibly effective process. And it wasn't just about Europe, and obviously Maastricht followed soon after that, and the integration of Europe, single market, but also um, the collapse of the Soviet Union, creation of many countries. Um, but democratization across Latin America, Africa, and much of Asia as well followed that. Something like over 60 countries became democratic in the 10 years after the, the Berlin Wall came down. Um, and there was also massive other areas of progress. Um, so, for example, average life expectancy in the world's increased by about 15 years since then. And it took from you know, the Stone Age to the 1980s to get that sort of average improvement in life expectancy because ideas have traveled, ideas that are leading people to live longer, healthier lives around the world, and technologies, vaccines, cures for cancer, etc. And there's been a leap in literacy uh, because the, the internet was also developed in the same year as the Berlin Wall came down. That's very significant. Not the internet, but the World Wide Web. And um, so we moved to a, a world which has seen massive progress. The number of desperately poor peoples come down by about 300 million since the Berlin Wall came down even though the world's population has gone up by 2 billion because of better life expectancy. Um, and that's really due to many of the things that were symbolized within the Berlin Wall coming down. Uh, spread of markets, but mainly the spread of ideas. Um, and then you had various other things happening, like the Uruguay round of trade negotiations, capital market liberalization, etc. So... I think it would be very difficult to look back on this period since 1990 and say 
there hasn't been huge progress. There's never been a period in history where there's there's been so much progress so rapidly for so many people in so many places. And on that score, it's been a very effective thing. But what, what has happened, particularly over the last 10 years, is that the underbelly of this process, the, the dark side of it, has become very evident. And there are really three dimensions to that. The first, um, which is symbolized by the financial crisis, is that not only good things connect, but really terrible things connect as well. And what we see in the financial crisis is the first real systemic crisis of this new world order, and there'll be many others. And the basic point is that connected systems become conveyors not only of good news and good things, but also really bad things. So the challenge of a global financial system is how do you have a global financial system without it being the super spreader of global collapse, financial collapse? How do you have big airport hubs without them being the super spreaders of pandemics? How do you have cyber networks without them being the super spreaders of cyber vulnerabilities? How do you have integrated systems without interdependency and risk? And I think what we found in the financial crisis was that the pace of change was so rapid, and it's also started with very rapid technological change in the case of finance credit derivatives, that the system institutionally cannot cope with the pace of evolution of the underlying systems of integration. And it's accelerating. And it's accelerating. And that really is because governments and regulators operate at best at evolutionary progress speeds. But the system is revolutionary. The, the integration of societies has been revolutionary. The spread of information through the web has been revolutionary. And, this, and, the, and the evolution of technologies has been revolutionary because there's been a release of creative genius around the world. There are more and more actors contributing to new ideas, whatever they are, good and bad ideas. And that, and that, and that, so that's the first real problem that I think we see. mean anarchy, in no, a sense, because... It means progress. It means faster cures for cancer. It means faster many things. But it does also mean greater ri- risk, as in credit derivatives, as in biopathogens, as in cyber attacks, etc. But if you're saying that the, the governments are actually incapable now of keeping up, by definition, because of the exponential growth rates, and governments can only do arithmetic growth rates, yeah. then we're opening ourselves up for just crash after crash or well I mean yes there will be a series of systemic uh, crises what I call in in a previous book the butterfly defect of globalization an obvious play on Lorenz's butterfly effect Mm -hmm. um, is endemic and it will lead to to all sorts of cascading risks but I, I my hope is that the world can and governments can wake up and you know, the, the problem with regulators is they tend to be backward-looking. So the measures that have been put in place to stop the next financial crisis, for example, are not the right ones to stop the, the next one. Isn't uh, this like the old adage that the generals are always preparing for the last war? Yeah, it is. It is. Um, and so I think we will get a wake-up call. Um, when another financial crisis is caused by something different, like a pandemic in Canary Wharf or Wall Street 
or a Hurricane Sandy that's a bit bigger, or some other sort of event, a cyber outage in Wall Street or Canary Wharf, um, or Frankfurt, um, people will begin to say, oh, okay, hype nodes and networks are very important in integrated systems, uh, concentration risk, geographical concentration risk is very important, and we will get an evolution that's more rapid. But I think what we should expect is much more progress and much more uncertainty, much more surprise, much more risk. And, and the question then begins is, how do you prefer it? So one, one big aspect of why this is going wrong is because risk has grown with integrated systems and complexity. And complexity means it's harder and harder to identify the risks, cause and effect attribution are much more difficult to discern. And that's because there are so many more actors. I mean, the whole bookshelves have been filled with books about what caused the financial crisis, for example. And the answer is many, many factors. Um, and that's because of it's a complex dynamic system. So there's lots of places that influence these outcomes. To play devil's advocate, one of the points made today in one of the sessions was that um, the risks are also becoming atomized in so much as the ability to detonate a nuclear bomb or develop a lethal pathogen used to be only available yeah. to a state. Yeah, that's but the point I made. Right. <laughs> Good. I was paying attention. Yeah. Uh, uh, and now that's coming down to an individual level. Yeah. Whereas, you know, that, 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 that is a key point, that, that the act, number of actors has changed, uh, that it used to be only nation states that could really cause mayhem. Mm -hmm. Uh, but now an individual or small group can, through the cybersphere, through bringing down a bank, through um, creating a biopathogen. But doesn't that uh, make the whole thing absolutely random in so much as you can protect against rogue states like North Korea? Yeah. But you can't protect against, you know, Joe Bloggs or whoever who actually is developing a pathogen. I think you can. Um, I think you can. Um, if you, and, and certainly you can develop systems by which you contain the damage that individuals create. I think we, we I think you, you can because we also know more uh, and have much more information and much more capability in building resilience, in finding alternative networks, in identifying early warning, etc. Whether we do or not is another matter. Mm. But I certainly wouldn't say that the struggle has been lost. Um, and I'm not pessimistic, I just think there needs to be a big wake-up call about the scale of the challenge so that the whole system is retooled. We spend much more money in our governments, <laughs> literally, with developing military capability, for example, to fight the last wars, when, when these small groups can cause mayhem. Uh, so, so one risk is that, this, the one reason why people are not feeling good is that, that risk is risen and is, is very confusing. The second is that inequality has grown extremely rapidly. Mm. And that's because some have done extremely well out of um, globalization. Many of those that have done extremely well are locating their assets offshore. Um, and the companies are, the most successful companies are. But so, it's in, it's so governments have lost their fiscal raising capability and the need for it is greater. So the world is much more mountainous. It's not flat, it's more mountainous. And in that, um, the places left out or locked out of change 
are very, very angry, whether it's the Midwest of the US or the north of England or the countryside in France or East Germany, these are the people voting against change. It's not the dynamic changing places like London or Paris or Frankfurt uh, or New York or San Francisco that are electing protectionist leaders. Uh, it's the places locked out. But isn't there a societal change as well? I mean, given the sort of post-socialist world, the, the, the model now seems to be you know, corporates and the, the relationship between corporates and governments have got tighter and tighter. And the whole 99s of Gotti Park thing, the real incomes for the average American have gone down by whatever it is, $1,000 a year for the last 20 years. And so they're now worse off. The average minimum wage has also gone down, and so they're worse off. And the governments are looking to companies and saying, our way forward is to promote our companies. That brings wealth. But as you say, the companies then are not paying taxes in. Yeah. Um, this whole thing is yeah, causing uh, the, the, social there's a, there's been a, I mean, one of the things that's happened with globalization is a race to the bottom um, in terms of uh, taxes, corporate taxes, personal taxes. And that means that governments uh, are competing on how little tax they can charge. And that, that means they have less and less money to invest in the future. Uh, invest in health, education, research and development infrastructure. And that is extremely uh, negative for growth. And so, so the second great problem is that inequality is growing and the capability and the willingness of governments to do something about it is weakening. And the third great problem of globalization is that what economists call the global commons. That more and more people are doing well. We have 4.9 billion new middle class consumers in the world. And that means that as everyone climbs the energy curve, you get climate change. As everyone starts consuming fish and meat, you get extinction of the tuna. As everyone starts taking antibiotics, Get antibiotic resistance. So, so, this challenge of the tension between individuals and collectives or collective outcomes becomes more and more acute the more successful globalization is, ironically. And that, and, that, and, pe and, and, that, and that is maybe the most fundamental challenge that globalization faces. Even if it can deal with the inequality issues, even if it can deal with the risk issues. This problem of can everyone have a good time? Can everyone live like, say, an American without destroying the planet and each other is a, is a big question. And my view is no. So we have to change our behavior and our lifestyles. And, and the challenge is that in a market system where everyone says more is better, that's very difficult. So we need to rethink our values, ethics, and and think of how we live collectively. And that's the most, behavior is always the most difficult thing to change. Do you think globalization is still going on? Because from where I sit, with a Moscow perspective, it seems to me that Moscow's accession to the WTO was the high watermark. No, globalization is definitely still going on. If you sit in Beijing, you'll have a very different view to in Moscow. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, China has become the cheerleader for globalization, President Xi has. Uh, you know, at Davos, stepped up and said oh, many, many things which were very pro-globalization. Pro um, if you look at data, like how much of the global economy is traded, how much information crosses national borders, 
how many people cross national borders. Depends how you define globalization, but if you define it as flows of ideas, of people, of goods, of services over national borders, the data tells me that globalization is still increasing. But there does seem to be now this increasingly strong rift. I mean, we've got basically a showdown again between the West, Europe, America, and the East, which is uh, led by Russia, or at least Russia is, is, the, is the focus of it. But the Russians and the Chinese have allied themselves. Uh, that he has been to, to Moscow very many times uh, to make it clear that they're on the same side and they object to this unipolar world, uh, they want a multipolar world, and they're saying that they're not getting it, it's not happening. Yeah, but that's a, different, that's a different thing to, to do you believe in an integrated world or not. China is the cheerleader for integration. China is saying we want more, we don't want protectionism, we want open trade. But we don't want the US to be, we want to work together to solve climate change. We want global solutions. So, I mean, I'm, I, don't, you know, I don't know much about Russia, but I know more about China. There's, there's I, I think it would be a mistake to say, I think China is today more pro-global than I've ever seen it, and I've been going there every year virtually since 1984, um, because it's more, it's more integrated. It depends. It's more, China's future depends on the success of, the, of other countries. China has over $2 trillion of U.S. reserves. It needs the U.S. to be successful. And it, it exports a lot to the U.S. and, of course, to Africa and elsewhere. It needs a successful global economy. So in, integration and interdependency mean that you have a mutual interest in each other's success. But that's economic. There, there's the, the politics. Also, also politics. You don't. China does not want the U.S. to become protectionist mm. because it, that would be very disadvantageous for it. And this current tension that's been riding. Which particular tension? Well, I mean, <laughs> There's so many. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but that's my point. I mean, uh, you know, you, you've got Trump, who is basically a loose cannon, and we can actually probably just write that off as a temporary thing. It's an yeah. aberration, and that they will return, you know, like Mendel's peas to norm once they get past that. But uh, nevertheless, there does seem to be an unbalance. You've got the emerging markets now are now the larger part of the global economy. Yeah. And yet, I, all yeah, of the I, infrastructure I, is is from the previous period. I think. I mean, what's behind? I think Trump and behind Brexit is is partly a reaction against the failures of globalization. And I would argue that neither Trump nor Brexit would have happened if we hadn't had a financial crisis, for example. Mm -hmm. um, but it's also a reaction against the loss of power. I think it's a late psychological reaction against, in the case of the UK, realizing that you're no longer G1 mm. or G7 member. I mean, the UK is falling below even 10 on the top 10 economies of the world. So, it, it, you know, it, it's, it's a loss of imperialism. And in the case of the US, it's a recognition that they can no longer tell the world what to do. And it's a sort of reflex reaction again, against it of feeling impotent. Um, but then but this is scary. So it, it is scary. It's a power. We live in a, 
the time. last time that happened was when French, uh, France, Britain yeah. lost the lead, and we ended up in a world war. No, I think it is scary, um, particularly when you have Trump in the White House. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's extremely scary, uh, but it, but. I think it, it is a transitional phase. It, I think we live in a very dangerous time of maybe 20 years or something because it's a power transition. We're seeing the old powers losing their dominance. We're seeing new powers like China rising. But in this tussle, no one is really a global leader. I think where we'll end up in 20 years' time is a shared power distribution. I think we'll basically have four major powers. We'll have the US, we'll have Europe, we'll have Russia, we'll have China. Um, India will become very significant too over time, so maybe we'll have five. And that could be a very healthy distribution. When the US gets a cold, the rest of the world will no longer get fever because there'll be very significant other global engines of economic power, for example. It'll be much better for the world, much more stable for the world and there'll be many more interests represented. So in the medium term, I'm incredibly optimistic that we'll get to the right place. But the transition as powers that used to dominate discover and, and internalize the fact that they're no longer dominant. I mean, the US does not have the financial power, the military power, or the political will to do anything anymore. I mean, maybe you can bomb a country with, you know, but they're not gonna lose troops in significant numbers. And certainly Britain is not, I mean, that's long gone from Britain. So it's a very delayed reaction to a transition. And and I think it's a in that period, psychologically, it's quite dangerous for countries. So we just have to get through to the brave new world without going to war. Yes, and, and but also recognize that this is the best time in human history to be alive. I mean, one can be extremely optimistic about the progress uh, the important thing is not to allow protectionism, nationalism, xenophobia, and this reaction to dominate, because then we go into a downward spiral. We're going to spiral a war, and what we need more than ever is cooperation between countries, is dialogue, and the real challenge of Trump or Brexit is not the economic one. That's big. The challenge is that these countries no longer have the will to cooperate. Or the in, they believe that they can go it alone. And that is the most dangerous of all the outcomes. And we see this in many countries, this nationalism leading to sort of, we will shape our future, which of course in 2017 is a dream which no country will ever realize because we are all more interdependent and we have to shape our futures together more than ever in human history. On that happy time, we will end. Thank you very much. <laughs>